BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thanksgiving might be our most traditional meal, but what do you know about all the processes that suck up raw ingredients and spit out turkeys, potato flakes, and jellied cranberry sauce into the modern supermarket? Coming up on Forum, the science and engineering behind some of America's most iconic foods. We'll talk Thanksgiving favorites, new flavors, and beyond, starting with the ingenious chef Claire Saffitz. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As a Bay Area person, you may look at jellied cranberry sauce or gravy mix and scoff. And hey, I like a pixie tangerine or tartine bread as much as the next person. But today we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking about food manufacturing, the people and techniques that deliver products to the supermarket. And no one embodies, in an odd way, the spirit of the show more than Claire Saffitz, the ingenious cookbook author and host and motive force of a delightful series of videos, Gourmet Makes, in which Claire recreated snack or, I mean, junk foods in the Bon Appetit test kitchen. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I know you did them a couple years ago, but I do want to talk about this Pringles episode where you attempted to recreate that incredibly strange shape and texture. Um, I don't even, junk food, chip, whatever it is. Um, tell me just like a little bit about like how you even go about thinking about recreating something like a Pringles chip. Right. I actually had some experience with Pringles that were as a snack that I had as a teenager, um, which was sort of unlike a lot of the foods that I recreated on Gourmet Makes, which I had no experience with. So I at least had a little familiarity, which helped. Um, and Pringles was among kind of the easier subjects that I tackled um, on that show. So 
like always starting with the ingredient list is the place where I begin with any kind of reverse engineering project like that. So it's taking a look at the ingredients and then trying to figure out sort of based on that information, I, I sort of had an idea of how to approach it, which is you sort of make this like, and I have to see if I even remember how I did it, kind of like potato flakes. I think I use real potato for some of it. Um, and really, I mean, a huge part of that show was figuring out how to get the shape of the thing, um, which is coming off of an assembly line somewhere and going into a huge, you know, vat of oil. Um, so it was about really trying to find. You had to like, like cut open a strainer and then like yes, hand yes. form it into Pringle <laughs> shape, as I recall. <laughs> a lot of it is like t- taking sort of common kitchen items and tools and then kind of like re revamping them and uh and trying to get them into the shape that you wanted so I did I did destroy a couple pieces of kitchen equipment which I was told was fine um and that was one of the more successful episodes because it really wasn't that hard um there's other ones that were much more challenging what was the hardest what was the hardest thing anything that was a gummy candy texture was incredibly hard so like jelly beans or um anything with that kind of chewy texture. And so, and it's like, I still don't really know how they do it. Um, but it definitely has to do with dehydrating and getting the kind of moisture content, right. And it was just basically impossible. And I I spun my wheels for like a week and then just decided to say that I was done, even though I hadn't really done it. So, um, somewhere easier than others. I always liked ones where there was like real cooking involved, like real manufacturing of something rather than just you know, cooking sugar and some gelatin and hoping for the best, which happened a lot. Did you ever go on YouTube and look up like any of the manufacturing line videos or anything like that? There's some fascinating ones from China. Yes. Oh, I was always, I was scouring the internet for any kind of video I could find that showed like the inside of the factory and the molds and the process. And even when I did find it, which was maybe 50% of the time, it wasn't terribly helpful because there's like a lot you're not seeing and understanding about the process. Um, Mm -hmm. But it really did reveal to me that no one should really try to make these things at home. It's just not. <laughs> You're like, it revealed to point. me the idea that we were executing was was possibly incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, completely. The whole premise was flawed. Uh, but it was, you know, I, I still learned a lot about um, about like sort of the, these foods that we hold dear um, and that are are meaningful to us. Um, and I and I and I that's fine. That's great. You should just go buy them instead of making them at home. Yeah, I mean, did doing that video series actually change the way that you think about processed food? I mean, did you did you gain like a grudging respect for these kind of manufacturing techniques? In some ways, yes. I think. I mean, I'm not really. I've never been a snacker, truly. Um, and I really don't like. I, I don't really go buy a bag of chips and open it. So I didn't really have. I was pretty neutral in my approach to a lot of these kinds of foods, um, which were for the most part, common snack foods and candies, but I really did gain an appreciation for on many of them. I was trying something for the first time and realized like, I, Oh, I understand why people love this. And often something was too salty or too sweet, but it, it really gave me an appreciation for the kind of our brain chemistry and the way that our bodies and brains react to these different kinds of flavors and textures. And, and it really is like, I have a lot of respect for it. I'm not sure that it's a, should be a significant part of anyone's diet in a long-term way, but as a, as a treat once in a while, I really did kind of gain respect for a lot of these foods that I, I didn't really give a second look to before the show. We're talking with Claire Saffitz, cookbook author and video host. She's the author of dessert person recipes and guidance for baking with confidence. So 
We are coming up on Thanksgiving, and the thing, you know, Gourmet Mix, of course, it it had this conceit of, like, making these, you know, industrially manufactured foods, but what made it so great was watching your problem-solving brain at work, because it, it was like you understood the materials, the food as materials well enough to be able to say, like, well, if this doesn't work, maybe this will work, and... I wonder, like, how do you, how did you develop that sense of food as material? Like, well, we need to add more water. We need to add cornstarch. We need to, like, work with these things as, as, as materials, not as things that are just kind of on a recipe list. Right. I think that came from my career as a recipe developer. So I worked for many years at Bon Appetit in the test kitchen, developing recipes and testing recipes for the magazine and various websites. Um, and so you really do learn in the process of trial and error to look at the ingredients as variables and to understand the properties of, so, so what are you getting when you use olive oil instead of butter and what are the differences and what do you, what what happens when, uh, well in baking, there's sort of, it's kind of, it's difference between what's called a hard fat and a soft fat. So with butter, it's like, you're getting something more viscous. You're getting something that where air can be whipped into it so that it's very different than olive oil and they, they behave differently and have different properties. Not, not to mention just different flavors. So you really, it's this process of trial and error, which you do a lot in recipe development because you have an idea of what you want and then you try it out and you realize I'm very far from my end goal. And then you start manipulating ingredients, which are variables to get what you want. So that's really where that comes from. And, and I've learned to, to really, I just think approach it as kind of this trial and error process, which is somewhat scientific, but also like, you know, I'm not working in a laboratory. My kitchen is not, um, <laughs> is, is not a lab. And so I'm often changing multiple variables at once and, and tweaking. Cause I can't, I don't have the time or bandwidth to make one cake 55 different times. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, but I'll make it a lot of times until I get what I want. And sometimes I decide there's, this is never going to work and I'm not, and I'm going to, you know, toss that idea in the garbage. So that happens too. Um, but really, especially with baking, which is my sort of wheelhouse, um, every ingredient is a variable always. Yeah. So talk to me, you know, one of the things that I feel like is really hard to get the way that you imagine it's going to turn out is biscuits. You know, there's like, you know, there's the kind of biscuits you can pop out of the container, which maybe we'll talk about later in the show. But if you were going to make biscuits from scratch, what are some things that people would really want to keep in mind there? Yeah, I mean, I actually think biscuits are among the simpler baked goods. Clearly, least, I'm not a baker. <laughs> well, it's there's very few variables, as, as I was just talking about. So there's flour, there's a leavening agent, usually it's baking powder. I mean, there's also a, a sort of a, a wing of biscuit making that's yeast biscuits, um, which I assume we're not talking about here. Um, but for most people, a biscuit is like a, a sort of flaky, buttery biscuit. Some people, you know, argue that they're really scones or whatever. It's, it's sort of semantics, but, um, it's flour, a leavening agent. Some people use self-rising flour. It all does the same thing. Um, a fat. So I like to use all butter and then the liquid often buttermilk because of the acidity of the buttermilk it contributes tenderness. Some people can use cream. There's a number of ways. Um, there's a number of approaches, but to me, it's really something very simple. And there's a couple, there's some orthodoxy to biscuit making. You want to keep the fat cold. You want to work quickly. You want to work the dough very little so that you're not developing gluten, which will make the biscuits tough because everybody wants a high rising tender biscuit. So right. it's, there's always technique. And this is something I say to people, even the simplest things are rooted in technique and you have to sort of know the rules, but 
it can also be very, very simple at the same time. And I think biscuits fall into that category. What about if somebody wants really a challenge? Like they're like, you know, they're they're with their family and turkey's going to be taken care of. Mashed potatoes is going to be taken care of. They're going to have like a moment to sort of shine. What's like a, what's something someone could take on? I think about, I feel like if you want to really impress people, you should get in early and try to do the appetizers while people are still really hungry. <laughs> um, because when you, like at the end of the meal, it's like nothing tastes as good as the first bite because of the anticipation and the hunger. So I could see doing something like a very elaborate appetizer or mousse-bouche, like a pâté en croûte, you know, which is a, a, a sort of like pâté mixture cooked in a pastry crust um, and you slice it and you get these beautiful cross sections. So something like that, or, um, you know, pigs in a blanket made with homemade puff pastry, which like Ooh. sounds so good. And I love pigs in a blanket. So that kind of thing. Is um, that not a corn dog or not a corn dog? <laughs> oh, not a corn dog. No. Cause it's, it's like, it's a more elevated, it's a cousin of a corn dog. Um, yes, but you know, a slightly fancier. A French cocktail. cousin of a bull. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, those are the kinds of little finger foodie things that I love at the beginning of um, sort of a cocktail hour or sort of thing. So I think try to get in early and that's what people are, will remember. Uh, and just before we uh, we let you go, what is going to be on your Thanksgiving menu? Like what's your, what are you doing? Yeah, my family, I usually I'm the one that's trying to argue for mixing it up and working in some new dishes or cutting some dishes that are always there. Um, and this year, just my, my feeling is just actually, I want to keep it really traditional and just do what we've always done. I think I'm, I think people are kind of craving some, some normalcy and a return to tradition. So we're doing, we pretty much do the works. One dish that we always have that I think is really special and delicious is a dish of braised shallots. They're braised in white wine and butter and they're so delicious. Um, and it pretty it's much just shallots. Ends. It's not like shallots it's, and a vegetable. It's just shallots. And we, you know, someone's job is to like peel four pounds of shallots or something like that. And my dad always makes it. It's so good with mashed potatoes and turkey. Um, so incredibly delicious. And then I usually go all out on desserts since that's my, that's really my Of course, my you're area. a dessert person. That's right, that. I'm a dessert person. <laughs> so we usually have like more pies than people. Um, but that's how I like, that's how I like to do it. And I make them. So I feel like, you know, you know that's on me. Uh, so yeah, we, we do, we do the works um, and then work in a couple of uh, family favorites. We have been joined by Claire Saffitz, cookbook author and video host. She's the author of Dessert Person Recipes and Guidance for Baking with Confidence. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much. Same to you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the systems that produce the Thanksgiving foods you love. Before the break, we were joined by Claire Saffitz, who reverse engineered these industrial food processes for her video show, Gourmet Makes. And now we're going to dig deeper into how modern Thanksgiving food is made. Like, how do potato flakes actually work, you know? So that's my question. But we actually want to hear from you. Grab your questions. What Thanksgiving food, particularly, you know, the sort of prepared stuff, have you always wondered about? What pre-made food can't you live without or have you decided to give up in favor of a homemade version, like when I finally started making real mashed potatoes? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let's meet our panel here who's going to help answer your questions and teach us about these systems. We're joined first by Barb Stuckey. She's the author of Taste, Surprising Stories and Science about Why Food Tastes Good. And she's Chief Innovation Officer at Matson, the Silicon Valley-based food and beverage innovation firm. Welcome, Barb. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. We also have Dave Arnold, founder and president of the Museum of Food and Drink, also host of the radio show Cooking Issues and author of the excellent sounding Liquid Intelligence, the art and science of the perfect cocktail. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me, Alexa. Oh, the president is somebody else. I don't want to take that job from Oh, okay. Sorry. Founder and... Just uh, founder. Just fa- founder, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool. Founder of the Museum of Food and Drink. And last but not least, we have Nick Sharma, food writer, photographer, recipe developer, and author of The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, Barbara, I want to start with you. Um, I know it's not technically a Thanksgiving food, possibly not even a food at all, um, but I want to start off with pumpkin spice. Can you tell me, like, as a, as a food developer... Do you look at the success and now near you, United States of America, and you say like, wow, that's impressive, or, or what? Yes, okay, I'll go into pumpkin spice, but first I want to back up and just mention that what you and Claire were talking about with the Pringle, that very special shape of the Pringle chip, it's called the double saddle. Oh, <laughs> just so you know, I, I just want to set the record straight there. We've done is our, our share of work. Is the double saddle chip patented by <laughs> Oh, Pringles? yes. Oh, yes. Everything about Pringles is patented. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, talking about pumpkin spice. So this is uh, something that's very near and dear to my heart. I happen to have grown up in Baltimore, which is the home of McCormick Spice Company. And when I was growing up, they, they used to process spices down in the in the downtown area and the harbor of the Baltimore, the inner harbor, used to smell like pumpkin spice almost really? year round. Yeah, it was it was amazing. So I, I feel like I breathed that air in my in my childhood. Um, pumpkin spice is it? It's really it's a phenomenal success. And of course, we have to start. You can't have a conversation without mentioning the PSL, the uh, Starbucks pumpkin spice pumpkin latte. Spice right. latte. Exactly. Yeah. And pumpkin spice has just, um, it's really resonated with consumers and manufacturers are using it in every category known to man. 
Um, what's really interesting about pumpkin spice is that we, we think about it as a sweet spice. Um, if anyone out there has ever had a mouthful of clove or nutmeg, you know very well that <laughs> the spices themselves are not sweet. Not at all. In fact, some of them are quite bitter. But we associate pumpkin spice with sweet things like pumpkin pie and pumpkin ice cream and pumpkin candy and everything that's that's made with pumpkin these days ha usually has some sweetness added to it. It's very nostalgic. It takes us back to our childhood when we had Thanksgiving and Christmas at home and it was baking. It's a very aromatic spice. So it just has a really broad appeal. It, it, with Americans. Now, I, I cannot say that that is true in, in other countries, though in other countries, there, are, there does seem to be this sort of warm spice, if you will, uh -huh. blend that is unique to a lot of different parts of the world. Wow. Thanks, Barb. You know, Nick, we know that food is really an emotional experience. I mean, Barb was kind of alluding to that, this idea that, you know, the reason we like pumpkin spice is because we like spending holidays with our families, at least most of the time. And so I, I was wondering for you, do you think that Thanksgiving food, whatever is actually on the table, actually does taste better because there's sort of this emotional valence packed into dinner time? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. You know, um, I didn't grow up celebrating Thanksgiving because I didn't grow up here. Uh, but Thanksgiving for me has become this emotional experience where it connects me to when I first came to the country, when I was in grad school, you know, living in Cincinnati. And a lot of the foods that I first tasted at my first Thanksgiving meal have now become strongly associated with me cooking them for dinner every year. And of course, the flavors around those change, but I still bring back the green beans, the sweet potatoes, Um <laughs> It's just so, such an emotional experience. And one of the things that happens with emotion and um, it also affects our perception of taste or rather flavor and flavor does the same thing too. So one of the most fascinating things um, is, for example, if you have a sports team that's playing on Thanksgiving Day and they lose, your perception of the food, say desserts, <laughs> wouldn't be as nice. Now, if they win you're probably going to find your desserts taste sweeter. So there's this um, interaction between how our emotions also connect with flavor. Well, I will root for number two UCLA to beat number one Gonzaga so it doesn't ruin my dinner tonight. That's uh, <laughs> something I'm really looking forward to. Um, let me stay with you for one more second, Nick. Um, as, as someone who grew up in India and then came to the U.S. and encountered Thanksgiving food in the way that you did as, as an adult, um, like what did you make of the meal, right? Because there there isn't a lot of textural variation. Um, it's kind of a, a, a heavy meal. Like, were you sort of like, why do they eat this stuff for Thanksgiving? <laughs> uh, so one of the things I knew, so one of my background in research is in molecular biology and um, physiological disorders. And um, one of the things I had learned in school is that people who live in warmer countries tend to deviate towards food that is also warmer because it makes them sweat and actually cools the body down. And people who live in cooler countries tend to eat food that is richer um, because of the fat that provides energy and then also helps them, uh, you know, sustain um, their body temperatures during these cooler periods of the month. Now, coming from India, we do eat rich food, but not to the extent like Thanksgiving is sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do get it. I think there's definitely like this perception of nostalgia because one of the things that happens with food is the memory aspect and I know we spoke you guys spoke about this before um, 
memory is such an important aspect. Once you associate either positive or negative uh, with a meal, it stays with you forever. And, you know, changing that perception takes some time. So I think what's happened is a lot of these dishes have become so integral to the, uh, to our culture and, um, you know, our emotional experiences with the family, friends, that they just continue. And I think Thanksgiving is one of those meals where everything is so defined, unlike Christmas. It's just mm-hmm. so defined. Yep. Yep. It, it's funny. I think that's uh, how I... I came to like oysters. I'm not even sure I like the taste of oysters, but I love the process of oysters and and being out having oysters with people I love. Um, Dave Arnold, founder, but not president of the Museum of Food and Drink. Um, I want to, we got to talk turkey here. And in particular, what I was hoping you could talk about around turkey is the transformation that came to the American food system with the cold chain, which is to say with refrigeration. Right. Well, I mean, the turkey is kind of an amazing thing. It's it's uh it's you know one of the few animals that we still consume that's actually domesticated here, right? So like turkeys are from here. They're not from any anywhere else. Uh, they were domesticated originally in Mesoamerica. Interestingly, brought back to Europe by uh you know by the Spanish, and then reimported again because the people you know who came over from England didn't know any better, and so like turkeys are fundamentally, uh, you know, Amer- America writ large, not the United States of America, but uh, American. And the, the species that run around, you know, in the, in, the, in the forests and whatnot are the same exact species uh, that we eat, right? And it used to be in the old days before uh, the advent of modern refrigeration, so in the, in the 1800s, you would buy turkeys uh, different times of year depending – the size and the taste would change depending on the year because the turkeys did their turkey thing you know, when it was time to have the babies, right? And so at Thanksgiving time, the turkeys that were born that year were just about a good size to really kind of eat, right? So it was kind of a prime thing to, to be eating then. But you could get younger turkeys earlier. You could get older turkeys uh, all year round. And if you go and you read some of the – like a uh, like post Civil War, there was a famous book called *The Market Assistance* by a guy named uh, Market Assistant by Tom Tom Thomas DeVoe, and he was writing out here in New York City. He wrote a book on everything you could buy in American markets uh, around the time of the Civil War. And it's it's an amazing read, right? And so to give you an idea, he discusses how the turkeys taste over different seasons. But like in in the year 1866, the as far as he knew, world record sized turkey, right? Amazing world record turkey sold for twenty five dollars to uh, to the union uh, to the union club of Stamford, Connecticut, grown by the widow Lounsbury, uh, and destined for President Johnson's you know President Johnson's table uh, that New Year's Eve was a whopping it was two years old and it was forty seven pounds. So nowadays, with modern breeding, that same uh, that same forty seven or fifty pound turkey, right, only takes eighteen to uh, twenty weeks to grow. Think about that, and and uh, like the world record turkey eighteen to now, twenty weeks, not weeks, t- yeah, wow. weeks, weeks. So and and the world record turkey now is about eighty six pounds, just for 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 you know. I don't know, perspective. And, and, and it all came about, right? So there's a couple of things. One, we can consume, we can kill turkeys now all year round and freeze them, right? And we can kind of ship them. Now, there were small-scale freezing operations, and, and, and there was, by the way, there was the, the cold chain 
in some ways, there was cold storage, right, prior to the advent of uh, mechanical refrigeration as, as we all know it, right? There was the ice house, which was, you know, very well known. And people could use ice and salt to freeze things, but these were kind of expensive. They weren't, they weren't everywhere, right? So the, the, the huge revolution in chilling so that you could, in your house, have something that stayed very, you know, very cold at 40 degrees, right, is relatively recent, right? And so, you know, even the icebox, you know, back in the day didn't keep your food that, that cold, right? So, you know, the, the warmest part of your icebox was at 50 something uh, degrees Fahrenheit, right? Mm -hmm. So not that, not that. And this is all the way through the, the, the 30s and even after the war, the, like there's many parts of this country that weren't fully electrified until after World War II. And in fact, refrigerated trucking, which is really what allowed uh, all, everything that we now know is possible with supermarkets and access to these kinds of foods all over the country, only, only possible because of the refrigerated truck, the reefer truck, right? And it was invented by one guy, uh, Frederick McKinley Jones. He's a, a black inventor. In 1939, he was working on sound equipment with uh, a guy who did movie sound stuff, invented the 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 standalone refrigerator unit with its own motor that could fit on top of a truck. And with that, he also invented the refrigerated boxcar because before that they used to use uh, ice for boxcars. So this one guy, Frederick McKinley Jones, and they started a company called Thermo King, which is still the most important huh. Yeah. Uh, you know, company to make uh, refrigerated reefer trucks. So this one dude invented the machine that allowed us to have point to point cold chain all over the country. And without that, you, you know, we don't have like the, the you know, plethora of, of turkey products that, that we have now. It's now it's also true. In, when I was born in 1971, about half of all turkey was eaten in the holidays, right? So your Thanksgiving and your Christmas, right? So there wasn't that much turkey eating for the for the rest of the year. Those two days was, you know, over half the turkey. But now, now it's the sandwiches, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Now they turn every, every because turkey is now really cheap to make, whereas it, it didn't used to be, right? So like now it's only 29% of turkey consumption is, is holiday uh, consumption and the, the rest of it's year round. They put turkey into everything because they market it as helpful. But even more important than that, They've made turkeys incredibly efficient to raise. I, you would, okay. So chicken is still the most efficient protein that we, uh, land-based protein that that we grow in terms of feed conversion ratios, right? So uh, it takes less than two pounds of feed to create a pound of uh, chicken, right? And the chickens are slaughtered, you know, at like what, like six six weeks or so. Uh, turkeys though aren't that far behind. Uh, so like, uh, you know the they're around two. So it takes around two pounds of, of uh, feed to create a pound of live turkey at the weights where, at the smaller weights where we have. And even the maximum at their slaughter now, it's still like 2.6 pounds to, to, to grow a pound of turkey. So it's intensely uh, efficient. And with that, though, comes all of the kind of also horrors of, uh, of large scale, you know, of treating animals right. as though they're machines. Yep. We're talking about the science and engineering behind some of America's most iconic foods with Dave Arnold, the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, Barb Stuckey, author of Taste, Surprising Stories and Science about why food tastes good, and chief innovation officer at Matson, a food and beverage innovation firm, as well as Nick Sharma, 
food writer, a photographer, recipe developer, and author of The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. And we want your questions. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. What questions do you have about the history of your go-to Thanksgiving dish? What's a Thanksgiving dish that you're glad has disappeared? <laughs> it just has gone out of fashion. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Listener Don asks, and I think I'm going to throw this one to you, Barb, how many of the so-called traditional foods actually developed because of the advent of convenient foods in the mid-20th century? For example, green bean casserole with fried onions or sweet potatoes with marshmallows or jello, quote-unquote, salads. Oh, I have to start with the green bean casserole because I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. And I grew up with it. So it is, it is very uh, dear, near and dear to my heart, very nostalgic to me. Um, it, interestingly enough, um, processed food companies or, or consumer packaged goods companies like Campbell's are oftentimes working on ways that they can um, sell more of their products, not surprisingly. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to publish recipes. I'm sure you've all been leafing through a magazine or on a web page and you see a recipe that's sponsored by a, a brand that you know from the grocery store. Okay. Um, we we uh, like to think about the ones that have been really successful as killer applications of a consumer packaged product. Um, so the killer app for Campbell's cream of mushroom soup really was the green bean casserole, which didn't um, come on the scene until 1955, which was about 20 years after the introduction of the first canned cream of mushroom soup. But it was a phenomenal success. And now um, about 40% of the sales of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup goes into green bean casserole, this one recipe that has been just tremendously successful. And I think one of the things that's that's really craveable about it is really the, the first of all, the, this incredible savory umami that you get from the cream of mushroom soup itself that gives not just a creamy mouthfeel, but it gives that, that savory from umami from mushrooms. And, and then, of course, you top it with onions, which have their own savory umami that have been fried until crispy. And so you have this wonderful textural contrast. And, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that live in the Bay Area as well. And, and we make um, we might make green bean casserole out of fresh green beans and we might fry our own onions. But there is something that is really really comforting about going back to that food that you grew up with as a kid and just buying the green beans buying the green beans in a can buying the cream of mushroom soup and um slobbing uh, it into those, a dish those, yeah <laughs> those french fried onions so um so that's that's green bean casserole um, oh wait hold on just one sec after we're talking about the science and engineering behind some of america's most iconic foods with barb stuckey Dave Arnold, founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, and Nick Sharma, author of The Flavor Equation. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the science behind some of America's most iconic foods, how they've changed through time, what makes them really work. We're joined by Barb Stuckey, author of Taste Surprising Stories and Science about Why Food Tastes Good, who's also Chief Innovation Officer at Matson, the Silicon Valley-based food and beverage innovation firm. We've got Nick Sharma, food writer, photographer, recipe developer, and author of The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. And we also have Dave Arnold, founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, host of the radio show Cooking Issues, author of Liquid Intelligence, The Art and Science of the Perfect Cocktail. We would love to hear from you what questions you have about the history of your go-to Thanksgiving dish. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dave Arnold, before the break... Barb was giving us an incredible uh, history of the green bean casserole. Jello salads also came up, which if you've ever looked at 1970s food magazines, uh, you you see a lot of jello salads. And if you look anywhere other than 1970s food magazines, you never see jello salads. Um, what can you tell us about that, the evolution, why, like why there was that particular food craze or, or food crazes like it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not a, a super expert on um, on kind of American Jello salads, other than obviously I like looking at the pictures. <laughs> However, uh, the interesting thing about that is that isn't something that kind of just happened as a result of there being uh, convenience foods. In fact, if you think about it, Victorian Jello molds, right, and English Victorian Jello molds and, and French ones. If you look at a lot of cookbooks from the uh, 1800s. They had amazing jello molds. And I, I forget uh, which author it was who did a, a big exposition on um, jello molds, but they used to be made out of very heavy gauge copper, very expensive, right? And so you, and they would be multi part molds. So, like the actual old school, like, you know, when I was a kid, it's like, ooh, this jello salad's got three layers. You know what I mean? In the old days, you would make a, a, a mold inside of a mold, remove it, and there would literally be shapes inside of shapes with, uh, with these. Jello molds, and so it was theorized that uh, the American kind of stamped copper industry. Uh, now that they became cheaper, they weren't as nice anymore, and that's one of the reasons that these kind of very fancy Jello salads kind of faded from uh, the scene. So I don't really know why they left, because remember the French still eat a lot of things, but they'll do a savory uh, thing in aspic, right? So uh, this kind of uh, has been maintained in other cultures. I think what happened is Americans 
began associating Jello exclusively with sweetness. And a lot of the compounded mm. uh, Jello salads that you get in the 70s, I mean, I remember I ate them, I'm old enough to have eaten them live in the real life. You know what I mean? Uh, a lot of those were combinations of sweet and savory. So you'd use some of the packaged Jello, which was always sweet. And, and then some Vienna use- sausages. Oh, man. No, or it's like shredded <laughs> carrots. And all these but then oh, you'd okay. use Knox on flavored gelatin as well for the savory side. So you'd get a lot more of these sweet, savory combinations. And I think Americans now just see Jell-O as a sweet, and that's why the salads are gone. Because honestly, at Thanksgiving, if you're going to have something sweet, it's going to be the cranberry, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's um, bring in quickly uh, Terry from Marin. Welcome to the show, Terry. Hi. Um, what I was laughing when I started listening to this this morning is because I hate um, Thanksgiving food. All um, of them? I don't eat any of it, and um, except for mashed potatoes. And I have found living in Marin, none of us really, um, that I know, a lot of people don't really like it anymore. And what we go into is salads and things like that more, and... I don't even care about any of the food on Thanksgiving. In fact, I kind of get kind of sick when I look at all the brown on the table and <laughs> all the yucky kind of, it's all like the same color scheme. And I see pumpkin coming into everything around fall time. And I just kind of, ugh, like, I don't want to even look at it. And even as a kid, I just really wasn't into it. I just thought it all seemed kind of gross to me. But when we started as, you know, hitting our 20s and we could decide ourselves, we didn't do any of those things. We did, like, salads and fresher foods, and there were there was nothing like um, any of the stuff you're describing on our tables when we were able to make our own choices in our 20s. So what's going on your table then on Thursday? Thursday, we're going to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we are getting Parkside pizza, and we're making a salad. And, you know, it just... It's just kind of funny. I feel like there's so much food around here that I really like. Like I never think, oh my gosh, I can't wait to Thanksgiving. Like I never, ever think that. I like mashed potatoes all year round. That's about it. But no, I couldn't think of anything that I would say. Geez, I really want to make this for Thanksgiving because I'm missing I it all year it. round. But, Terry, yeah. the Thanksgiving dissenter. I appreciate that. I am. I am the Thanksgiving Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. You know, Nick Sharma, what about someone who has a Thanksgiving dissenter in their family and they also want to have, you know, a, a Thanksgiving meal? What's a couple things they could do to sort of like make it seem so it's not all, as, as Terry wonderfully described, all the brown things on the table? Okay, so I have to say I did Thanksgiving once at a friend's family at Berkeley and it was very fresh and green, unlike what I'm used to on the East Coast. Uh, which is where my first experience at Thanksgiving was. But, uh, you know, one of the things I've been doing is each year I change the flavors of the dishes. When I try to do is even with the turkey, when I brine it, I'll get in a spice blend from another country that I'm unfamiliar with, uh, say from the Middle East or from Africa, and then put that in there just to change things up so it's not the same old, same old, because there's just so much repetition happening each year. And so you kind of, you know, know what to expect. But I think what makes it surprising and often pleasant is when you just change the whole thing. So I'm not making a pie this year. And I love pies. Instead, I'm going to do something called a babinka, which is a dish um, that I grew up eating. And it's got Mm -hmm. pumpkin. I've put miso in it. And, um, you know, miso is, it's savory, it's sweet and salt. I mean, it's savory and salty. And then it balances the sweetness from uh, from the pumpkin. 
And so there are things that you can do just to play around with it. And what I always tell people is just bring in flavors from other countries and toss it in. That's what makes it special. You know, uh, Barb Stuckey, we heard uh, Claire Saffitz earlier talking about you know, calling different ingredients sort of the variables in uh, any kind of cooking equation. What's different about sort of developing new products that you're imagining are going to be prepared foods that go into a store, like using those variables rather than cooking at home and working with things? Yeah, well, a lot of people forget that what the things that you buy in a can started out as fresh produce. So, you know, pumpkin is one or green beans are one. And the challenge with produce for anyone who has farmed before or even has a lemon tree in their yard, or I I have a nectarine tree here um, at our house. And there is one weekend of the year where I get all of my nectarines. They are perfectly ripe in one weekend. And I have to get about 150 nectarines off the tree. And then I have to do something with them. And that's the case. That's where these ideas of preserving food came from. When the crop comes ready, you've got to be ready to do something with it. So the, the, the great thing about having something like canned pumpkin or canned green beans is for, is the consistency, the standardization that happens when you blend a large crop of pumpkin, for example, and that product is made into something that has a consistent pH. It has a consistent level of sweetness, so a consistent bricks. It has a consistent texture. And you can plan on that from year to year to year. So there is a standardization of of these convenient foods that you won't get in making it from fresh. Now, whether you think that's good or bad is a a matter of opinion, but it does make cooking a lot easier and a lot more straightforward if you are making a a recipe. And that's true with everything. I mean, so much that we, we make at at Thanksgiving time, that's true of of squashes and Brussels sprouts and even potatoes. Fresh potatoes can vary very much in terms of their moisture content, in terms of the sweetness, in terms of their flavor profile. So, you know, it it is something that um, you can count on from the convenience foods that you buy from the grocery store in a way you can't count on from fresh. Yeah, that's definitely something I, I love growing our own vegetables. But man, there's such huge variation in the squashes being delicious or not delicious. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Mohan from Mountain View. Welcome to the show, Mohan. Hi, Alexis. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Great. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to uh, point out that, you know, uh, for Thanksgiving every year, about 46 million turkeys are killed for a single holiday in the U.S. And if you really look at the way that these birds are treated and raised and slaughtered, it's really, um, it's really quite cruel and horrific. So uh, it's kind of sad that we've, you know, we've based our tradition of celebrating life and love and family on such cruelty. So I wanted to give a shout out to the idea of um, going vegetarian for Thanksgiving and, and creating a new tradition around that. And I would really encourage people to give that some thought. Yeah, Mohan, do you have um, some recipes that go on your table? Absolutely. So there are some wonderful plant-based roasts you can get in the store now. Trader Joe's has one. Um, uh, Whole Foods 365 has one. And there's a brand called Gardein. And they are really uh, wonderful substitutes for turkey. They're basically wheat protein-based meat analogs. And 
Uh, you know, all of the, the standard dishes, the pumpkin pies, the, um, the sweet potato, uh, the mashed potatoes, all of that can be made vegan. You can substitute plant-based milks instead of cow's milk. And, uh, you know, basically any of your traditional dishes can be veganized. You just have to look it up on Google. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Mohan, for that, uh, you know, ethical perspective. Obviously, very important. I, uh, Barb Stuckey, I, I wanted to ask you about the kind of the incredible amount of innovation, particularly, you know, in California that's gone on with, you know, meat replacements um, and whether you've you've worked on any of those and, and what you think of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a very large part of what we're working on these days. Um, whatever is trending in the, the world of food and consumer behavior is what we're working on. Um, and, and frankly, we've been working on meat substitutes uh, like your, your caller just mentioned, for 25 years, um, we worked on the original um, corn. That's corn with a Q-U, um, which is a, a, a came to this country um, almost 25 years ago, I believe, and um, was a, a came in as a chicken substitute. And since then, we've been working on um, everything from um, alternative milks made from flaxseed and pea and walnut and you name it, um, we are working on making a milk out of it. We've got some really exciting stuff in the pipeline that is um, milks made from crops that have, have never been a part of the food chain before. So some novel ways of making plant-based milks. Um, Plant-based meats is is also something where um, we're now using really interesting sources of protein that um, many are grown like peas, which is very much on trend now, pea protein, but others that are now starting to be created through precision fermentation. So you can control the growth of this protein by fermenting it in a bioreactor um, so this is something that, that we're very excited about because of the, um, the efficiency and um, the ability to make protein at scale in multiple locations across the world. It really just changes the, the supply chain equation. Um, so and cool. so, you know, lastly, I'll just mention one thing also that, that we're working on, which um, which is uh, another solution to um, the, the earlier callers' um, concerns about killing animals and animal cruelty. And that is for us to cultivate meat. And that starts by taking a small sample of um, some, uh, some animals' um, cells and putting those cells in an environment with heat and warmth and food and some scaffolding, growing. right? Yeah. Yes, on some scaffolding, exactly. Um, and then growing that meat into something that can be harvested and made into meat alternatives. And, and that is um, not quite scaled yet, but that technology is happening and coming, and it will change the way we think about feeding ourselves um, protein from animals. I'm very excited about it, as everyone is at Matson. Thank you, Barb. Um, let's bring in Heather from Oakland, who I think wants to defend the honor of Jello salad. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Heather. <laughs> Hi. Yes, I totally do. I just went home to Iowa for a funeral last weekend, and there were three, and I took a, a little bit of each one. It was and how so were comforting. they? 
(laughs) Very sweet and very delicious. My grandma was in a bridge club and I got all of her recipes and I I sorted them by color. And I think there's like 50. (laughs) (laughs) I love a I love a recipe for food that you can sort by color. You know, that's (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) Um, Do you do you make them yourself? Like, have you have you made them? I have for my kids and for we had like a uh, we called it the white trash party where and like, you, all of my family recipes came out. <laughs> and do you do you find that people once they have actually tried the jello salad, they're like, wait a second, what have I been missing? Or are they like, I knew this was gross just from the picture in the 1970s food magazine? You know, my husband went through a different line or, you know, he, he came back with all the same three and, and was raised here. And we were both extremely excited when we had them last weekend. That's so, good. You know, they're gross, but you're going to eat it. Well, thank you. you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you uh, so much, Heather from Oakland. Appreciate someone sticking up for, uh, for Jell-O salad. Your last thing, uh, Nick Sharma wanted to give you uh, one more uh, shout out. Stuff you're making on Thanksgiving. What's going on your your table? Like must have uh, on Thursday. There won't be Jello salad for sure, but um, I am definitely going to do mashed potatoes, and then I also like hash browns, so I'm going to do both of those. Got it. Good. Dave Arnold, what's definitely going on your uh, kitchen table? Well, I'm I'm only doing desserts and breadstuffs this year because I'm going to my sister's house. So I'm making some uh, strange alternative pies. I'm doing a, a yeah instead of pumpkin or or uh, or sweet potato, I'm going to do a carrot based pie based on an old Montana recipe uh, from the 20s or 30s. So yeah, working on that. Well, working yeah, your that. family must be like, dude, our our relative is the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink. He better bring um, a historical pie. Yeah, something, you know, got to go alternative on the, you know, similar but alternative. Thank you. So, and uh, Barb Stuckey, how about you? Are you? I imagine like Aunt Barb, people are sort of like, what new things from the forefront of innovation are you bringing to our table? Or do you go very, you know, uh, conventional? Very traditional, although with a twist. So my turkey will be brined with an entire bottle of Kikoman soy sauce, which mm. if you have not done that is, is just a fantastic way to brine a turkey. Uh, there will be Brussels sprouts, there will be butternut squash, um, lots of mashed potatoes. Um, and uh, the 1950-something recipe uh, for eggnog from the New York Times, which is a classic in our household now, and um, it's so thick and so rich, you can stand your spoon up in it. We <sighs> love it. That is so great. Thank you so much. We've been talking about the science and engineering behind some of America's most iconic foods with Barb Stuckey, author of Taste Surprising Stories and Science about why food tastes good and chief innovation officer at Matson, a food and beverage innovation firm. We've also been joined by Dave Arnold, founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, host of the radio show Cooking Issues and author of Liquid Intelligence, the Art and Science of the Perfect Cocktail, as well as Nick Sharma, food writer, photographer, recipe developer, author of The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained. Earlier, we were joined by cookbook author Claire Sappet. She's the author of Dessert Person, Recipes and Guidance for Baking with Confidence. Thank you so much to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Forum is produced by Tina Lauberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prale, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm off for the next few days. Have a great Thanksgiving. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Leslie McClurg. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.